Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be continuing the story of the murder of Jake Embert in Albany, Georgia. Let's get right to it. On December 3, 2019, more than five years after Jake's death, Susan Marie Johnson Majors Melton Fortune is in court and facing murder charges. In the state's opening arguments, District Attorney Greg Edwards lays it all out. He tells the jurors that the evidence will show that Susan shot and killed her husband after failing to poison him to death. And there were two trails to follow to get to the murder of Jake Embert. The first was his finances. See, like we've known all along, Jake was financially stable up until Susan's several aliases came into his life. Within 10 days of their marriage, Susan began demanding changes to the beneficiary of not only his life insurance, but also his federal retirement thrift savings plan. And Jake made those changes because she assured him she would take care of his son, Will. And that never happened. Susan took control of every aspect of Jake's life, even refusing to let him walk out to the mailbox of his own home to check the mail because she couldn't have him finding out that his home was in foreclosure and bills were piling up. Susan had immediate access to Jake's money, all of his accounts in which she was supposed to be paying all of the household bills, mortgage, utilities, and child support. However, she failed to pay all of these bills. Susan, the not nurse, had her own accounts and was getting money from her ex-husband and Social Security. However, she didn't use her money. No, no. She used Jake's to pay her own bills and then just let his go. Jake's finances were exhausted to the point he and he had never before had to call family just months into the relationship for financial help. And that second trail was Jake's health. Susan told anyone who would listen that she was a nurse, and she seemingly took on that role. You know, she prepared Jake's meals, took over his medications, and Jake, who, remember, had always been relatively healthy prior to Susan, not the nurse, began having heart attacks, gastro issues, such as vomiting, diarrhea, cramping, and then seizures. Everyone noticed a decline in Jake's health that coincided with his relationship with Lady Fortune. And a week prior to Jake's so-called suicide, his doctor had scheduled him for further testing to get answers as to why Jake's health was declining so quickly. And remember Zoe, Jake's beloved dog? Well, she had always been healthy too. That, of course, was until Susan came into the picture when suddenly Zoe too had seizures, vomiting, and diarrhea. And well... Susan had to take her to be euthanized. What are the odds? Mr. Edwards goes on to say that every crime has three factors, means, opportunity, and motive. The means she used was poison, and then she shot and staged a suicide. The opportunity. Well, she had a window of opportunity when Will left the house. And while it's not the state's burden to prove motive, this one's a classic. Greed and money. 
She expected that large payout. She had planned that poisoning, but due to mounting pressures, she had to change her game plan. Mr. Edwards also points out that the police investigation could have been better, could have been more comprehensive, and that it was brief. However, the evidence is still there. And the defense... Well, we get a little preview in their opening statements. Attorney Mark Brimberry reminds the jury to keep an open mind, and he begins with the glaringly obvious, that the initial investigation by the Doherty County Police was flawed. A lack of work, lack of utilization of training, not following proper procedures, or performing very basic tests at the scene on June 28, 2014. And y'all, I 100% agree on this point right here. He goes on further to say that Jake's family paid someone to reach a conclusion and that this person sought out those that could help him reach a specific conclusion. I mean, insulting the intelligence and integrity of Jake's family, Private Detective Lee Wilson and Mr. Michael Knox right off the bat. Cool story, bro. Mr. Brimberry says the only relevant date is June 28, 2014, because that's the date first responders came. So forget everything prior, especially that little poisoning bit and everything after. Like, you know how the new boyfriend was allegedly sick? But here it comes, y'all. Here's the crux of the defense's case. Wait for it. The comedian, Robin Williams. And if you're just as confused as I was, let me try to make sense of it for you. Robin Williams committed suicide with no sign of depression or forewarning. And if you're still confused, welcome to the club. We're all friends here. Brimbury also brings up the hairbrush and how it was sent off to a private lab to determine homicide or suicide. It was tested and then destroyed. And I mean, that sucks, but we have the results. But wait, are you saying if there's evidence there was a poisoning, then it's a homicide? Because that sure sounds like that's what you're saying. The defense also points out that Jake was a mechanic and he worked with antifreeze, worked outside in the yard, and he used DEET, and that chemicals can easily be absorbed through the skin. The defense also made mention of Jake's time in the military and brought up PTSD and sums it all up with, I submit to you the evidence is going to show that Susan Embert killed no one. And with that, the witnesses begin to take the stand. First up is Carolyn Lewis, the 911 operator who took the call placed by Susan on June 28, 2014. The call is entered into evidence and played for the jury. Y'all heard that call in episode one. And Miss Lewis testifies that she remembers that call because it came in as a suicide, but she had later seen on the news that it was a homicide. And with that, not even halfway through the first witness, the defense moves for a mistrial based on the fact that Miss Lewis said the word homicide. I mean, come on, y'all. This is literally a murder trial. The motion for mistrial is denied, but that comment is stricken from the record. And that right there, ladies and gentlemen, is going to set the tone for this trial. There are more sidebars, objections, motions for mistrial by the defense than you can shake a stick at. It's evident that the defense is going hard, but they just don't have much to work with. It got so heated at one point during a sidebar between the prosecution and defense that the judge had to start sending the jury out so that opposing sides wouldn't have to be up at the bench together. The prosecution moves it along and calls the two officers from the Doherty County Police who responded to the scene. The first officer notes that he had no specialized training on how to address a crime scene and that he did not do anything to mess with the scene other than take the photos. He definitely didn't process the hand of anybody for gunshot residue. 
Both officers admit on the stand that it was critical to the investigative scene if all present had their hands tested for gunshot residue, and nothing prevented any of them from carrying out those simple tests. They admit that mistakes were made. And once again, no disagreement. I don't think from either side or anybody who has ever heard this story. Several of Jake's co-workers testified that they were well aware that Jake was getting increasingly sick and that this sickness coincided with his relationship with Susan, not the nurse. And even more interesting, Jake seemed to get sick at work after lunch. After he would consume those lunches brought in from home prepared by his wife, Susan, it was so well known that it was joked about around the office. His supervisor said that Jake's work performance suffered once this online romance bloomed, and he was constantly on his phone with his wife. They all noticed a decline. The prosecution also asked each of Jake's co-workers if they ever had any indications that Jake might be gay. And their answer? A resounding no. On cross, two questions are asked by the defense to each of Jake's co-workers. Do you know about Robin Williams? And were you contacted to provide a hair sample? See, it was being implied that Jake could have been exposed to the toxins he was being poisoned with at work. Only problem with that is that none of his other co-workers were sick. None of them. Not to mention the fact that they all testified that they weren't exposed to DEET or antifreeze in their line of work. And Robin Williams? I mean, his death was absolutely tragic. But Jake's not Robin Williams, and their circumstances are nowhere near the same. The prosecution called several of Jake's family members to the stand. His sister Yvonne testified that Jake never had any financial issues for the 26 years he was married to his first wife, Betty Sue. And she first became aware of Susan when her brother said he was not going to turn on any of his responsibilities, that something could be a situation where he would need to get married. Y'all remember those pregnancy claims made by Susan through the Facebook messages sent to Jake, right? Okay, just checking. She testified to the fact that Susan was immediately pressuring Jake to change beneficiary of life insurance and retirement. Yvonne asked him not to do that, and he said it had already been done. Jake tried to assure her that Susan would take care of Will if anything happened to him. She recalled the time when she had came to Georgia to check on Jake. You know, the one when Susan and Jake got married? Well, the Justice of the Peace wedding wasn't the original reason for her trip. Yvonne wanted to find out exactly what was going on with Jake, so she stayed at their house. And one night, while Jake, Yvonne, and Yvonne's husband were just having a casual conversation in the living room, Susan, not the nurse, walked in and said, He's getting ready to have a seizure. Yvonne recalled looking at Jake and he seemed fine. And she and her husband, well, they were just puzzled. Susan proceeded to take Jake to the bedroom and Yvonne asked if she could go with. Susan's answer, no. In no time though, Jake came right back and they finished their conversation like nothing had happened. The whole encounter was just surreal. Yvonne asked Jake what medicine he was taking for his seizures. He said he didn't know because Susan gave him his medicine. And when Susan left the next day to go find a wedding dress, she looked everywhere for Jake's medication, but she couldn't find it. 
those financial issues reared their ugly head as soon as Susan's several aliases came into the picture. Yvonne had to regularly loan Jake money to cover the household bills, which again had never happened before. And after repeated phone calls asking for help, she felt something didn't add up. And so instead of just directly handing over money, Yvonne started calling and paying the actual bills herself. Jake had informed her Susan was paying the mortgage and the child support. Yvonne received a late night phone call in February of 2014. It was Susan. She was upset. She tells Yvonne that Jake had lied to her about his finances, and Susan was asking for more money. So Yvonne suggested that maybe she herself should take over the finances and help the pair get back on their feet. But Susan's several aliases? Yeah, she's having none of that. She let Yvonne know in no uncertain terms that she could take care of it herself. At one point, Yvonne had asked Susan directly why she didn't just go get a job. I mean, after all, they were under the impression that she was a nurse. Susan's response was that she was trying to find a job, but it was difficult. She goes on to say that she had gotten a job making PowerPoints for the city of Albany, but then said the FBI was investigating those people because they had done something wrong. The city of Albany? I mean... When Jake did place calls to Yvonne asking for financial help, Susan could often be heard yelling in the background asking for more money. And we're not really talking chump change here. Yvonne testified that she was giving between $1,000 and $1,500 each month, and this went on for four to five months. But eventually she stopped being asked. And when was that? Well, she recalled receiving a text from Jake's phone that didn't exactly look like he had written it, asking again for money. And when she responded, tell your wife to get a job? Well, that's when the calls for money ended. On June 28, 2014, Yvonne received a phone call from her niece Rachel telling her that her brother was gone. She checked her phone and sees that she had a missed call from Jake's phone and a voicemail. The voicemail was Susan stating something along the lines of, Yvonne, can you call me? I have something to tell you. So once she was able to somewhat compose herself, she called Susan back and asked what happened. Susan informed her that she was drying her hair and had to straighten it. So she said to Jake, Jake, I'll be right back. She went to the computer, you know where that is, right? And she heard a loud bang and went back there and she had to look at that. She had to look at that. Understandably, Yvonne wasn't really in the mood to continue her conversation with Lady Fortune, so she asked her if she had something of Jake's that she could have, and Susan responded with, the family Bible, and hung up. Yvonne recalled some discussion about Susan making plans for memorial services, but she never followed through, so Jake's ex-wife, Betty Sue, did. I mean, let's let that sink in for a moment. Jake's wife didn't make plans for memorial for her husband, so Jake's ex-wife stepped up and did. On the stand, Yvonne was asked if there was ever any indication that Jake was gay, and the answer, again, was no. Communication had since been cut off with Susan. How did that happen? Well, Susan would often post on Facebook asking for people to pray for those that were ill. So Yvonne asked why, in all this time, through all Jake's sicknesses, why she did not once post anything about her husband being ill, and she was promptly blocked by Lady Fortune. Couldn't handle the heat there, Susan? 
On Cross, it's pointed out that Yvonne had hired private detective Lee Wilson and presented a lot of evidence to him. Well, there it is. I mean, wouldn't you present any evidence you had to your private detective? If that's not an obvious statement. Jake's ex-wife Betty Sue takes a stand, and she testified that Jake had never deployed during his military service and was never treated for any combat-related PTSD issues, and that he always paid his child support on time up until February or March of 2014, and that she was never aware that the home she had once shared with Jake was being foreclosed on until after Jake's death when she seen a notice on the door. She recalled going to the house after Jake's death and speaking with Susan and her mother. She was informed that there would be no arrangements made because Jake didn't have any friends or family, so it was just the two of them. Let me remind you that Jake has two whole-ass children, one of them still a minor, and five sisters. Five. To insinuate that Jake had no family is frankly laughable. On cross, Betty Sue is asked if she's aware of a long list of random diagnoses, which she's not, and then surprise, surprise, Robin Williams is brought up yet again. Jake's daughter Rachel testified about her first time meeting Susan, and Susan, not the nurse, had in fact claimed to be Susan the nurse upon their initial meeting. Rachel goes on to say she never really got to know Susan because Susan simply didn't make herself available and avoided Rachel like the plague. But she grew suspicious of Susan, not the nurse, after her father began suffering as soon as she came into his life. Suspicious of Susan? Absolutely. Even more suspicious after Zoe began suffering from seizures and diarrhea, and then was driven to the vet by Susan to be euthanized. And on June 28, 2014, when Rachel arrived on the scene, she had told the coroner Michael Fowler about her concerns. Rachel had also asked Susan what happened when she initially arrived on scene, and Susan had told her, I don't know. I don't know. I just got out of the shower and heard a bang. I had to go back there, and I found your father. Notice the, I had to look at that. I had to find your father theme we got going here. Almost as if Susan is the victim here. Give me a break. Later on the day of June 28th, Rachel had come to talk to Susan about what to do for a memorial service. Susan, of course, said that there would be one. Rachel takes the opportunity to ask again exactly what had happened, and Susan tells a completely different story. She's now saying that she was on the computer when she heard a bang and went back there and found Jake. And we all know that both of these stories cannot be true unless you had your computer in the shower, which for obvious reasons, I really don't recommend. The locks on the family home were changed the day after, and that's not all that happened. Rachel, Will, and a friend went over to their family home to gather some belongings the day after they had just lost their father. Will asked Susan about Jake's will, and she lost her collective shit. The cops were called, and Rachel was arrested. Yeah, you heard that right. Rachel was arrested. Why? Her arrest was due to a probation violation stemming from a charge she got as a juvenile. She was 17 years old at the time. Rachel was 30 when her father was killed. She was put in jail over a charge that was over 10 years old the day after losing her father. I mean, apparently we don't thoroughly investigate death scenes over here, but get yourself a little probation violation and they will lock your ass up. I can't, y'all. I just can't. 
Rachel testified that once she was executor of her father's estate, she went to secure her family home, and upon arrival, the house was empty and trashed, valuables gone. Lady Fortune knows her valuables. Apparently, family heirlooms were missing, coin collections, flags, furniture. But of course, as y'all know, she was able to secure her father's hairbrush and other personal items which were turned over to the family's private detective. On cross-examination, the defense, of course, brings up those charges, trying to discredit Rachel's testimony and throw a little shade her way. Those juvenile charges. They also ask about multiple diagnoses of Jake's that Rachel testifies she was unaware of. Although she did know, her dad suffered from a little anxiety. And then Robin Williams again. But Rachel's response, I mean, it did make me chuckle a little. She says she knows plenty of people named Robin Williams. The district attorney on redirect asked her if she's ever seen an article on Robin Williams and the fact that he suffered from Lewy body dementia. Yes. Did her father have that disease? Absolutely not. The defense attorney then asked a whole host of questions about Robin Williams and Lewy body dementia and a commercial, and I'm really starting to wonder if this man has a strange obsession with Robin Williams. I kid, I kid. Jake's son Will testified about life in the Embert home after Susan's arrival. Remember, Will was a minor when his father was killed. He spent his weekdays at his mom's house, but the weekends were all about him and Jake. At the beginning of his father's relationship, Susan and Will got along just fine. That was until she moved in. She came with all these house rules. For instance, nobody was allowed to be on the computer besides her. And remember, this was Jake's computer. Will testified that his father wasn't allowed to walk to the mailbox to get mail from his own home. And while Will had to make his own plate, Susan would always prepare Jake's plate. And Zoe again. Zoe started having diarrhea, throwing up, and he felt that Susan was bitter towards Zoe because that was his dad's baby. Will recalled the day he found out Zoe had passed. His father had called him and told him that Susan took Zoe to the vet, she had distemper, and she had to be euthanized. I mean, this is the first time I'm hearing of distemper, and I've looked at the vet records. Will also recounted that Susan was constantly accusing Jake of having affairs, and that Jake would just look at Will, smile, and shake his head in disbelief. Just two nights before Jake's death, Susan had accused Jake once again of having an affair. Will and his girlfriend at the time were present and heard Susan screaming at Jake once again. Jake had his typical Jake reaction and just shook his head. Will left and went to spend the night at a friend's house. Jake arrived back at the house on Saturday, June 28th, around 10 a.m. He went to change his clothes and passed his dad in the hallway. His dad was still in his PJs, headed to the kitchen to get some coffee. Will changed, joined his dad at the table for coffee, and the pair talked about going to that race. Jake knew that Will was going to pick his girlfriend up and he would be right back. He never saw Susan in the house that morning. He assumed she was in the bedroom, taking a shower, getting dressed, whatever. Will was only gone for 45 to 50 minutes when his best friend was taken from him. Upon his arrival back at the house, Susan was out front screaming and on the phone. She gestures to Will by making a gun shape with her hand and pressing it to her head that his father has just killed himself and tells him not to go back there. It takes a moment for Will to process exactly what has happened and what Susan is trying to tell him. But when he does, 
His world is shattered and he collapses to his knees. He looks over at Susan and sees blood on her left hand, her ring finger, the hand she was holding the phone with. Law enforcement arrived. Will was allowed to leave to take his girlfriend to meet her mother without giving an official statement or any testing. Will corroborates Rachel's story about when the pair came by the next day inquired about their father's will, adding that Susan was yelling, You don't need to see the will. You'll get what your father wanted you to have. And it was Susan's sister, who was also present, that called police on Jake's children. Mr. Buckner, y'all remember him, right? He's the one Jake made the trade of the Firebird for the Jeep. It is revealed that not only did Susan try to sell Jake's tools behind his back and make multiple statements, he testified somewhere in the ballpark of 15 to 20 that Jake wasn't going to be around much longer, make the claim that she was a nurse at Phoebe Memorial Hospital. Well, she had also been frequently texting Mr. Buckner from her own phone, and at one point sent a photo of herself standing in front of their house where the carport was with the Jeep in the background. The text said, hey, how are you doing? In fact, Susan had attempted to communicate with Mr. Buckner between 20 to 25 times and was texting him all the way up until the Wednesday before Jake's passing. Mr. Buckner tried his best to ignore it, but eventually became so uncomfortable that he brought it to Jake's attention, stating, Mr. Jake, I'm going to be honest with you and let you know what's going on. I don't want no conflict between us. It's evident through Mr. Buckner's testimony that Jake was anticipating this race on that Saturday he was killed, so much so that he had gone to Mr. Buckner's shop to see that Firebird. The pair stayed in frequent communication as Mr. Buckner made repairs to the car. And while Mr. Buckner originally planned to repaint the car red, once Jake told him he liked black, he went with a jet black and a red racing stripe down the middle. Jake was so looking forward to seeing that car run just one more time. Of course, his life would tragically be cut short just hours before that could happen. All these witnesses that personally knew Jake Embert were asked if they had any inclination that Jake was gay, since that's one of the reasons Susan claimed he had shot himself in the initial 911 call. And every single witness that personally knew Jake testified that they had zero inclination that Jake was or had ever been gay. And another common theme between the testimonies emerges. You see, Jake Embert had expressed to multiple people on multiple occasions that there was nothing in life you couldn't get through and that suicide was never the answer. He had expressed it to co-workers, friends, his daughter. Everyone was well aware how Jake felt about the taking of your own life. Dr. Houston, Jake's doctor, testified that in February of 2013, Jake was sent to the ER for a CT of the brain and an MRI. The reason? The doctor's notes stated that he was having shakes and tremors, confusion, and he was not responding at times when his wife spoke to him. He thought seizures could be possible due to the episodes of confusion Jake was having. He was placed on a seizure medication just in case. After further testing, there was no apparent reason Jake was suffering from this seizure-like activity and there was never a diagnosis of a seizure disorder, although Jake suffered from these tremor-like attacks. There's also a note again from February of 2013 in which the doctor had jotted down that while Jake was suffering from bronchitis, his girlfriend was more interested in his testosterone replacement than his shortness of breath. 
I mean, a girl has to have her priorities, right? Jake was back seeking answers on May 15, 2014. He was suffering with nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. The doctor originally believed the cause was new medication he had been prescribed after his heart attack, so he changed up the medication. The problem temporarily resolved. That was until June 18, 2014, when Jake was back and the symptoms had returned. Dr. Houston ordered a CT scan of his abdomen and pelvis. And on June 26, 2014, just two days prior to Jake's death, the doctor ordered further testing, specifically a colonoscopy, due to the abnormal findings on the CT scan. This was more than just indigestion. Dr. Houston was getting closer to finding answers. When the defense brings up some antidepressant medications that Jake had been described, Dr. Houston says Jake was prescribed those medications for more of an anxiety problem rather than depression, but the conditions can often intermix. He also adds that he never felt Jake was suffering from a serious case of depression. Jake had never been treated for STDs. Remember, Susan had previously said something about that in the 911 call nor did he ever present with any suicidal ideation. And then the expert witnesses. Well, the state had a whole host of them. Let's kick things off with the man, Mr. Michael Knox. His career began way back in 1990, and this man's resume is insane. He has multiple degrees and endless education. He's a published author. I mean, he's about six lines into his probably 20-page resume when the defense interrupts and stipulates he's an expert. And then the district attorney responds with, that'll save us some time. Entered as an expert in crime scene reconstruction. And for the record, it did save some time because this man could have went on about his qualifications until the cows came home. Expert? Uh, Yeah. Mr. Knox testified that he was contacted by Lee Wilson, the family's private detective, and he reviewed police reports, photographs, the gun, and visited the scene. And then he rendered his opinion. His opinion? There were numerous indicators that that scene was staged. Did he have sufficient information to render his opinion? Yes. And what information exactly was it? Well, the body positioning. The blood that's on the bed around Jake, the positioning of the gun and how his hand was placed on the gun. All indicators that there was some altering of the scene. Jake Embert wouldn't have come to rest the way that he did if he had shot himself and the scene had not been touched. There's a line of demarcation where the natural blood pooling stopped, and the spot to the left of Jake's arm is off by itself. There's nothing around that spot of blood touching it, which suggests that Jake's body was moved. Blood can't just pull in random areas. That spot of blood doesn't make any sense with the suicide theory. Mr. Knox continues, Anytime you see blood pools or saturation areas with a disconnect, there's a violation of lateral continuity, meaning it stops when it shouldn't. There has to have been some other connection at some point for that blood to get there. Heavy saturations usually come through blood flow. There wouldn't be a gap in between if he was shot and lying back in the position that he's in. So that means something at some point was moved where that area of blood is. The sheets are bunched together, which happens with movement. You can clearly see the direction of the movement. It's consistent with Jake's body being pushed further up onto the bed. 
the positioning of the gun is another major problem. The bullet made impact to Jake's left on the wall. It's not at bed level. It's up fairly high and a fairly straight impact. For Jake to have shot himself in the position his body was found, lying flat on his back, you would expect to see an angle in the entry and exit wound for the bullet to come to a stop in the wall in the position that it did. The gunshot entry and exit wounds are fairly straight, and that would be more consistent with Jake being shot while in a sitting position. Mr. Knox gets up and uses the end of the evidence table as a platform to demonstrate. He stated, if you shoot yourself, then what typically happens is one of two things. The gun is dropped, which means it should be dropped right here below where his hand is, so it would land at the edge of the bed. It could end up on the floor, or the gun remains in a person's hand, so if they fall back, the gun remains in their hand. What you would not see is for a person's fingers to completely move out of the trigger guard, down the gun, lower fingers completely off the gun, and they're folded back. His hand isn't open. His lower two fingers are actually folded back and the other two fingers are pulled back. His opinion is that this gun, as placed, was manually manipulated. The lack of blood and tissue on the weapon was also a concern, especially with what had initially been deemed a press contact gunshot wound. You would expect to see blowback, blood and tissue from the gunshot wound that gets drawn into the barrel of the gun. The blood and the tissue is usually found within the barrel and the edges of the gun. You would expect to see blood on the edge of the barrel, slide, recoil spring guide, as well as small blood spatters on the hand, which there was only trace evidence of blood found on the gun and no blood spatter is present in any of the crime scene photos of Jake's hands. What had happened with the initial scene investigation is that it appeared as if it was handled just as what it was reported to be. You don't want to assume just because somebody picks up the phone and says a person has committed suicide that it's a suicide. You don't know what it is until you fully investigated it. Typical protocols for a death of this nature were not used. We always start with homicide first because you can scale back. If you fail to do certain steps initially, you will not get the opportunity to go back and do that again. There were a lot of things that weren't done that Mr. Knox would have liked to seen if he were reconstructing. The gunshot wound itself, not autopsied, we don't have any really good close-up photos. Mr. Knox would have liked to have seen hundreds, possibly thousands, rather than about a dozen or a couple dozen. He also testified that stippling was not evident in the photos of the gunshot entry wound, which you would expect to see with a close contact wound. And then there was that layering. The red bath mat above Jake's head is lying partially over a pool of blood. So the blood is there and then the mat is on top. And then parts of Jake's hair are lying on top of the mat. That's again not possible with an unaltered scene. Stephen Shamoon takes a stand, and he's a firearms and toolmark examiner with the Valdosta Police Crime Laboratory, and he reiterates that if this was a press contact wound, he would expect to see more blood and blowback on the weapon. And although the gun did test presumptively positive for blood, the testing used is very sensitive and reacts to even trace amounts of blood, and no blood or tissue was found on the gun that could be seen with the naked eye. And then the state calls yet another expert witness, Assistant Special Agent in Charge with the GBI Region 3 Field Office, Mr. David Smith, who testifies along the same lines of Mr. Michael Knox. He had reached the same conclusion. Due to the blood stains, the gun, the lack of stippling, and those sheets, this scene was staged. Clinical and Forensic Toxicologist and Laboratory Director of Epertox Laboratory, 
Ernest Lakissa testified to the fact that multiple toxic substances were found in that hair sample retrieved from Jake Embert's brush, chromium, arsenic, and barium, DEET insect repellent, and triethylene glycol, what DEET is dissolved in, and that, in his opinion, to reach such high levels, the toxins would have had to have been ingested. The side effects would be excruciating, severe joint pain, pain in joints that won't go away with aspirin or ibuprofen, pain radiating up and down the arms and legs, and all over experience. DEET specifically would have severe gastro symptoms such as vomiting or bleeding, lethargy, diarrhea, and seizures. And he went on to say that in conjunction with Jake's heart condition, it would have created toxic burden and would have certainly been fatal. And as far as a dog or other small animal goes, the demise would be brought on much sooner than that of a human. The defense brought up skin absorption and inquired if regular use could explain the presence of DEET. And Dr. Lakiska said, not unless someone had been sitting in a tub full of DEET. And with all of that, the state rests. And the defense is up. First on the stand is the coroner, Mr. Michael Fowler. And remember, he's called as a defense witness. And after a rundown of the events of June 28, 2014, Mr. Fowler is questioned about his original ruling of a suicide by press contact gunshot wound to the head. And Mr. Fowler admits openly on the stand in front of God and everybody that he made a mistake. He doesn't make excuses. He owns his mistake. He testifies that at the time he had only been coroner for about a year and he had since had more training and that the words press contact wound should never have been reflected in the death certificate. And it is at that moment that the defense attorney, Mark Brimbury, attempts to get the Doherty County coroner, his own witness, declared a hostile witness. His reasoning? He claims that Fowler has changed his testimony since they had a short recess and his responses to the questions are of an entirely different nature now. Judge Lockett stated, The fact that you don't agree with his answers doesn't make him hostile, and it's denied. Mr. Fowler goes on to say that the original death certificate is null and void, and the true death certificate that exists in the courts reads, Gunshot wound to the head and shot by another. Jeff Horn, the funeral director and embalmer for Banks Funeral Home, is up next, and he reveals that the fact that Jake's body was cremated less than 24 hours after his death, while that might appear suspicious, it's really just a matter of necessity. You see, his funeral home didn't have refrigeration to properly store a body, so the crematory happened to be open on a Sunday, and after receiving the death certificate and Susan coming in and signing, and a phone call to the coroner to ensure there was no holdup being made, the procedure was done. There was a medallion placed with Jake that had his information to ensure that nothing got mixed up. He identified an urn that he had sold Susan and placed Jake's cremains in. He also testified that Will and Rachel had called him and asked for some of the cremains to place in lockets to remember their dad, and he had reached out to Susan and she gave him the go-ahead. So a small amount of cremains was placed in the lockets and they were given to Jake's children. The urn is entered as evidence, but it's what's in the urn that's interesting. There's the bag and the medallion that Mr. Horn recognizes as what he had placed Jake's cremains in, but the bag is now empty and just a little residue remains. And now there are seashells in the bag. 
The defense presents their own expert witness, Christopher Robinson from Chris Robin Forensic, who is their all-in-one expert in the fields of firearms and ballistics, shooting reconstruction, bloodstain pattern analysis, and gunshot residue analysis. And while he takes shots at all of the state's expert witnesses, and a lot of time is spent discussing how far the weapon could have been away when the shot was fired, or how he's seen a relatively clean gun in cases of suicides he's reviewed, or how he believed he saw what appeared to be stippling on the crime scene photos. It all comes down to this. He couldn't render an opinion on who he believes shot Jake Embert on June 28, 2014, due to the lack of investigation and evidence available. The court is then informed that Susan, the defendant, wanted to take the stand. Judge Lockett performs a colloquy or a discussion between the judge and the defendant to ascertain that the defendant understands their rights, in this case, specifically her right to testify or not to testify, and that being solely her decision. It seems it comes as a surprise to her defense team, but after Judge Lockett very thoroughly informs Susan of all of her rights, she says she still wants to testify. Ladies and gentlemen, here we go. Under direct examination, Susan testifies that she and Jake got along great throughout their marriage, for the most part, and around the time period of Jake's death, they were getting along just fine. Everything was grand. And on June 28, 2014, she had just taken a shower, was getting ready to straighten her hair, and went to the computer which was located in the dining room to retrieve her vape when she heard a gunshot. She then ran down the hallway and tripped over her dog. She looked into the room and saw Jake laying down saw everything when her dog jumped on the bed. She reached over Jake and grabbed her dog and put him down, left the room, and called 911. Holy new details. When asked if she recalled the entire conversation with 911, she responded, and I quote, No, not the whole conversation. I was ecstatic. Ecstatic? I do not think that word means what you think it means. Several times throughout her testimony, she used the word ecstatic, slip of the tongue, misunderstanding of the English language. I don't know. You decide. She testified that the reason there are now seashells in the urn is because she did have a memorial service. Granted, one, she invited none of Jake's family to at the beach in Florida, and she had spread his ashes and collected seashells as a memory thing. Her words, not mine. And then Prosecutor Greg Edwards gets ready for his cross. Right out the gate, Susan is asked if she's a licensed nurse in Georgia. No. Florida? No. Anywhere? No. But then goes on to say just a few moments later that she's a home health care and school nurse and work for Sims Elementary in Pace, Florida. So you're a nurse, not a nurse? That's what you call yourself? Because I'm confused. I mean, y'all remember... Lee Wilson looked high and low, and Susan, not the nurse, was never in fact a nurse. She also claimed to be working on her master's degree in psychology, although she couldn't recall where because she's in school so much. She actually admits that that nasty and semi-threatening Facebook post about no games, no drama, and that she was too old to spend the rest of her life in jail was directed at the Embert family because they were harassing her. She claims she didn't attend her own husband's memorial service because she wasn't invited and didn't know where it was. And that William Bell, you know the one she had told Jake was waving a gun at her and threatening her, and the reason she had to move into the Embert home? Well, he was never abusive to her. He was just messing with that gun and it scared her. 
Jake, of course, just voluntarily changed his life insurance policy a little while after they were married. She never suggested it. And when confronted with Yvonne's earlier testimony, she said she wasn't listening. Lady, you're on trial for murder. You might want to pay attention. Susan didn't change the locks on the house to keep anyone out. The locks were just torn up. And that was a very pressing issue, apparently, since those locks were changed just a day after Jake's death. She admits that she prepared all the meals in the house, but she was not putting Deet in his food. She wouldn't poison him. She loved Zoe. She only ever accused Jake of cheating one time, and this was months prior to his death because their sex life went down and she thought that was an indication that he had a girlfriend. They were both paying the bills and Jake was writing all the checks. And he was paying the mortgage and child support, and she never ever said Jake gave her the wrong impression of his financial stability. None of this is true. She loved her husband. And regardless of what the financial records show, Jake was already struggling when she came into his life, and they only had to ask Yvonne for money a couple times. There were no house rules about getting the mail or being on the computer, and Jake didn't want Will to have that Jeep. She was driving it, along with her Suzuki and that new car she bought after Jake's death with that life insurance policy, because who doesn't need three vehicles? Susan never told Mr. Buckner that Jake wasn't going to be around much longer, never said she was a nurse at the hospital, never tried to sell the tools behind Jake's back, and she dang sure didn't text him enough that Jake had to put a stop to it. She doesn't know why she told the 911 operator that Jake was gay. She had no proof of that. She was just ecstatic. Yeah, there's that word again. And Jake was very depressed. He had done this himself. And she never claimed that Jake had sexually transmitted diseases on that 911 call. Nope, she meant to say PTSD or whatever. Except for she literally said sexually transmitted diseases and didn't use the abbreviation, but moving on. Jake never got out of bed that morning. She never saw Jake out of bed on the morning of June 28, 2014. That conversation between Jake and Will apparently didn't exist. She had woke up at 5.30, had some coffee, went to the computer, and around 8 went back to the bedroom to talk to Jake. She showered, did her makeup. She was just getting ready to do her hair when she took a break and drank some more coffee, went to the computer to grab her vape and heard the gunshot. She then tripped over the dog, and now she didn't just reach over Jake. She's on the bed to get her dog out of the blood, and then she called 911? And she doesn't know how the bath mat wound up on the bed. She didn't pay off the mortgage payments on the house with the proceeds of Jake's life insurance because she didn't have the full amount. Everyone is lying. She's the only truthful one. She didn't poison Jake, and she damn sure didn't shoot him, and she didn't listen to all this testimony. She paid attention when she could. She's the victim. Poor, poor Susan. Everyone is just blaming her and they're all liars. But the jury doesn't buy that story. And I don't think you do either. Nope. And on December 17th, 2019, Susan Marie Johnson Melton Major's Fortune is convicted on all charges. Malice murder, guilty. Felony murder, guilty. Two counts of aggravated assault, guilty. Possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony guilty. And at sentencing, Judge Lockett handed down a life sentence, 30 years without the possibility of parole on the murder charges, 10 years for the aggravated assaults, and five years on the possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony. And these are to run consecutive. Susan will never breathe another breath of God's fresh air and rightly so. She has forever changed the lives of everyone who knew and loved Jake Embert. 
After a long-fought battle, Jake Embert finally received the justice he so desperately deserved. Jake will forever be remembered as an exceptional father, a beloved brother, and an all-around good guy with an impeccable sense of humor. The Embert family would like to dedicate this episode to their private detective, Mr. Lee Wilson, who worked so diligently to bring justice to Jake. Lee, we thank God every day for sending our family the most professional, intelligent, and humble man we've ever met. We will forever remain grateful for everything you've done to bring the light of truth surrounding what happened to our beloved family member, William Jake Embert. Love, the Embert family. As always, I'll post some more information on Jake's case on my Facebook, at least of these, and on my Instagram, at least underscore of these. New episodes drop every Thursday. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. Shout out to the Embert family. I'd just like to say once again, it was an honor working with all of you and being able to tell your story, Jake's story. It's an experience I will never forget. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.